Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. The United States and much of the world continues to face a brain and mental health crisis that is worsened due to the pandemic and the resulting economic recession. Last year, nearly 40% of adults reported symptoms of depression or extreme stress, both independent risk factors for dementia. The behavioral health crisis is also acutely impacting children and teens, with suicide the second leading cause of death among those 18 to 24. Our guest today is Dr. Glenda Wren Gordon, president of Mindula Clinical Services. She currently serves on the National Alliance on Mental Health and has served on the HHS Advisory Committee on Healthy People 2030. Dr. Wren, thank you so much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you. I'm very excited to be here. How concerned are you about the stats that I just shared? You know, these concerns existed prior to the pandemic, and it's almost like a bucket of kerosene was poured on top of a raging wildfire. So I'm definitely very concerned, as are probably many other people in the country, in the, in the whole world, actually. It's very concerning. My hope is in the fact that people are actually paying attention and finally investing resources behind the solutions that we have known to be helpful for some time. Why the severe shortage of behavioral health providers? It's almost as if you were in a road race with someone and the illness has gotten an unfair head start. And so no matter what we do to try to train more providers, we have this gap. There is a limitation on the number of physicians that can be trained in the year. There's a limited number of residency training positions. So we can build more medical schools. But if there's not more training programs, you still cannot catch up that workforce deficit. We have seen increasing numbers of physicians going into psychiatry, of other behavioral health providers. We have seen expansion of clinical pharmacy, of expansion of psychologists and other disciplines within behavioral health. But we still have this catch-up game. We have been at a tipping point where we have to really just transform how we mobilize this limited resource. Because the idea that we could possibly get enough providers for the need, that's not going to happen. So a decade ago, we used to talk about equity and the digital divide. Is that still an issue or did the pandemic really transform the conversation around telehealth? We definitely still very much have an equity issue that is alive and well. We have made significant progress. However, particularly in rural areas, And many parts of the country do not have as much broadband access. They may have to drive to a hotspot location in order to access Wi-Fi. And I think we saw this most acutely when the world shut down and we had to figure out how to remote school. It was quite evident that there were families who did not have Wi-Fi that could accommodate learning. So some of those advancements were longstanding and some still exist. I will say from the perspective of telehealth services, there has been an awareness and recognition finally that this unacceptable, effective, desirable 
way of engaging in care. And I think the pandemic really, really helped us all to see we got over all of our hesitation. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be the same. I just want to smell you in the room. You know, all these things that came into our head about it's not going to be good enough. We know it's pretty good. And I think most of us in the field were worried that the supports from government and other changes in policy were going to be taken away. I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic lasting so long is you can't kind of take away something that works so well once people get used to having it. So I'm still hopeful that we will continue to have the policies that support expansion of teleservices. There's a strong push by the World Health Organization and NAPA, which is the U.S. national plan to address Alzheimer's, around brain health and prevention of dementia. Where does this effort intersect with your work in behavioral health integration? I think there's a couple of areas of intersection here. One is in the area of early detection. A lot of times the early signs of dementia are behavioral. It may be something that a trusted caregiver would recognize and perhaps in taking their loved one to their primary care doctor, they may mention irritability. Now the irritability may just be, I can't seem to place an item that I have lost. So that type of irritability, not so much from an underlying disorder, but those early, early signs. And again, when you're able to what we call rule out other things, that kind of helps to focus back on this might be a memory issue. So where there's might be a question, are you depressed or, oh, they, they lost a loved one. Maybe this is grief. Maybe this is normal. Instead of wondering on their own, integrated care, particularly collaborative care, allows the primary care provider to have that expertise brought in at the point of care so that you can have early detection. The second area of, of critical importance is in caregiver support. Caregivers have a lot of responsibility and they do not have a plethora of extra time or extra mental margin to do hard things. So the hard thing of saying, you know, I'm spending a significant amount of my time caring for a loved one who may have a dementia disorder, Alzheimer's, I have to take care of myself. I know I need help, but I cannot call the number on the back of my insurance card and hope to find someone. Like I cannot do that mentally. And so collaborative care doesn't ask you to do that. It says you come to your primary care just like you would. And oh, by the way, I've noticed a change in you. You seem a little burnt out. We have a care team who can call you, who can arrange virtual visits to connect with you and give you some practical skills. So those are the two areas, early detection and caregiver support, that I think is really an area of opportunity. Your expertise is in advancing resilience in health equity. It's a role you played as the founding director of the Kennedy Satcher Center for Mental Health Equity at Morehouse. In what way does digitally enabled care that was accelerated by the pandemic present a unique opportunity right now? That's a great, great question. And the opportunity is to level the playing field through equitable practices. So health equity, many of you have seen that graphic regarding the difference between equity and equality. Equality is I'm just going to give everybody the same thing and like good luck. Equity means I'm going to invest more where you need more support and where you don't need that much more support, then you don't need that much and you're still getting to where you need to go. And from that perspective, on behavioral health, by making that accessibility present, those that just need a little bit of support can get that support, even through self-management strategies. 
and then they're okay. Those that need more robust supports can receive that for a short, limited time, and they can have remission of their symptoms. And those that have more severe symptoms can have a positive therapeutic experience in a comfortable setting of their home, even if they're doing virtual visits, and then work towards getting specialty care when that's indicated. So for many people who are facing racial, ethnic, gender identity, like all of these different categories that we know confer additional risk, leveling the playing field through technology by making it as easy as that smart device that you carry in your pocket every single day, it just cuts through a lot of those. It doesn't eliminate. Let me get, let me get this straight. There are still structural inequities that have their impact every single day, but it is a path to cut through some of that inequity so that people can get the help that they need and overcome those traditional barriers that have been so heavily researched in terms of mental health help seeking in particular. So do you think that increased adoption of virtual and digital services combined with the rise in healthcare consumerism means that patients aren't going to be waiting to make informed decisions about their health? I sure hope so. I mean, one of my personal visions of mental health equity is that people will have accurate information about what helps and what hurts. This is not secret knowledge. We don't have to rely on Dr. Google that there are actually healthcare system opportunities for me to be informed about treatment options to include psychotherapy, complementary alternative medicine practices that have a strong evidence base, as well as medications and things like that. I think that knowledge is power, (laughs) to use a very, very old phrase. And the next important thing you need is a social network that's going to recognize that you need help and be able to direct you into that next step. That's where people suffer for decades is they know they have a problem, but they're just stuck making that first step towards getting formal care. So the more that we have care in barbershops, salons, the places where people are, the closer we'll be to that future that we all want for ourselves and our loved ones where you can get help when you need it and it's not too hard. Help us unpack the terms around behavioral health integration. On the ground level, what does culturally centered integrated care mean to a person out there? For a regular person, I would say having whatever your mental health needs be as accessible as when you go for your checkup. When you go for your checkup, you don't know, like maybe even know what a pancreas is. You know, you don't, you don't understand the the internal organ systems. That's fine. You go to your doctor and they recommend a series of tests, screening exams, some interview questions that you answer about your family history, things like that. And then the doctor does their job and they say, based off of this assessment, here are the things that we have as a concern and here are the recommendations. Culturally centered integrated care takes that and extends it to mental health. That includes a series of maybe even just two screening questions that you might get in primary care for depression. There are wonderful multi-diagnostic assessments that allow you to detect both depression, anxiety, trauma, substance use disorders. In less than five minutes, you can get that checkup from the neck up, as we call it, to get that mental health assessment. Culturally centered means that the provider is aware of your cultural background and at least has, at the very least, the cultural humility to understand that most people have a theory of mind. 
So I don't have a theory of pancreas. Most people don't have a theory of pancreas, but most people have something they think about in terms of what is the mind, what's it controlled by, whether that's a faith belief system around your mind and your soul and your body and your spirit, whether it's a spiritual understanding, whether it's even a stigmatizing one, like, you know, people with mental health problems are weak. I mean, it could be good or bad. It could be accurate or inaccurate, but a culturally humble approach would be to meet that person where they are and then to be able to invite them into a space of inquiry, curiosity, self-awareness that can help them detect where those challenges are and help them to be open. As a prescriber, many people are very leery about putting a pill in their body that might affect their mind. Again, you might be that way on a Tylenol, but most people have a little bit of leeriness on a pill they put in their mouth that's going to make their mind feel weird. And so as a prescriber, I need to be able to not feel threatened by that and have a process for educating someone about why I'm recommending a medication, making sure they're informed about the potential risk factors and side effects and how to manage that, and that we are a collaborative team. I always tell people, I'm not going to come to your house and shove a pill down your throat. That's just not like how I roll, but I will advise you and then you have to make that determination. And that partnership and that collaboration is what makes for wonderful therapeutic relationships. So how is the company you lead, Mindula, deploying technologies to advance this behavioral health, and how do you demonstrate value? Oh, that's such a great question. I work with such an amazing team at Mindula, Justin Lanning and Melanie and Steve Seidel. We have a great executive leadership team, and we're really kind of a merged company. So my company, 180 Health Partners, was acquired and now forms Mindula, and so I would explain our approach is really taking care of particularly complexity. So that's our area of expertise is we're not going to shy away from those complex populations. Those include pregnant women who are exposed to opiates and they're pregnant, youth at risk for suicide, violence, which is a big you know issue of the day, violence reduction, addressing those social determinants of health. So our company leverages technology, not just through traditional telehealth services, but it's tech-enabled support, 24-7, live, not asynchronous, access to care. Just that feeling of, I have a support team that's available to me 24-7. That, for some people, might just be enough to help them. Suicide prevention, I didn't mention that's another one of our programs. So we have this approach of tackling those wicked problems, those difficult behavioral health populations, and then grounding it in measurement-based care and outcomes. So we're not just asking you to trust us, you know, to make it better. We have a set of validated clinical outcomes that include actual clinical improvement, as well as managing total cost of care. And the way to explain that is not, you know, the traditional sense of we just want to do the best for the least amount of money because we want to make a huge profit. It's really about efficiency. We want to serve the most amount of people. We know the need out there is so, so great. We have to be efficient with the way we deliver services so that we can take care of that next person. And so all of our programs are held to that standard of delivering value. And our partners want to partner with us because they know that's part of our fundamental philosophy on excellent care, proven outcomes, and maximizing that opportunity to serve the largest population. So let's attach it to the technology of texting. Yeah. How do you maximize that phenomenon that people feel very comfortable texting to friends? How do you translate that into behavioral health integration? I mean, there are great ways of doing that in both live forms as well as leveraging technology's automation capacity. So 
most of us probably had the experience of getting a text reminder to a doctor's appointment. That wasn't always the case. So through that same process, you can engage people asynchronously, not even using a human resource, just by planning those touch points to say, hey, you have an appointment coming up, or hey, it's been a while since you've come in. Our care teams, both on the case management side and our clinical teams, also are very comfortable utilizing text interactions. That's where having some creativity in terms of how our services are paid for is really necessary. And the places where we're really innovating is having a reimbursement structure that allows you to deliver those types of interventions in addition to the more traditional time-based in-person or virtual clinical encounters, if that makes sense. So moving just beyond the reminder for the appointment to actually text-based support that you are providing, because some people are just more comfortable starting out that way, or it's all they need between visits is to say, hey, I'm not having a great day. In fact, just forget about my role as a clinician, as a person, as a friend. I have many friends that I'm supporting through tech support right? Like, hey, how you doing? I was thinking about you. I don't really have time for a full conversation, but there are a lot of people that I can stay connected with through those means. And that's something that our company and I think others like it really want to leverage that form of technology to touch more people in a given 10-minute increment that you could with traditional 50-minute in-person encounters. So is that reimbursable? And what are the gaps that hinder this type of deployment of technology? You know, under traditional what we call fee-for-service arrangements, right now, to my knowledge, there's not a pathway for per-text reimbursement, right? Case management, though, and in peer support might be areas where those care providers may utilize those modalities of engagement and further those billable encounters. But for the most part, it's the more innovative accountable care organizations or those advanced payment models value-based agreements that allow for that type of engagement strategies to be recognized for the value that they provide, if that makes sense. So Dr. Ryan, you have a fascinating biography. You're a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. I am. Go Army! So how did you get there and what lessons of leadership translate to your work as a clinical psychiatrist in the BHI space? I can't even tell you the real answer to that. It's a really funny story. It involves a minority recruiter that showed up to my house after I called the number on the back of a pamphlet. So that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I was always very academically oriented person and a patriot. You know, that's just how I was growing up. And, you know, it's a military college, but it's a leadership institution. So a lot of the leadership lessons that guide me to this day were forged in the fires of the very, very rigorous academic, military, and physical training program of West Point. And my class, the class of 1999, has both benefited from the peak of all that's great about that and has also absorbed, you know, the shadow side. The shadow side of resilience could be the idea that, like, I'm invincible or I'm invulnerable. And then when you have those challenges and you're not used to being challenged, there are some pretty significant mental health vulnerabilities that come in there. So I would say what I take away most from that experience is not being afraid of big challenges. I mean, there's just like, I think I can do anything. (laughs) I really do, which is a good and a bad thing. As I get older, there are some physical limitations I need to honor. But really relationships, maybe that's an unexpected takeaway. The friends and even people who I wasn't really close with during that time, now that it's over 20 years later, those relationships really bind you 
for the rest of your life. And so as I'm, you know, getting older in life and reflecting more about what's the meaning of it all and what is it all for, you realize that it's really about your relationships and how you spend your time connecting with other people, how you can support each other through a shared experience at one point. But now we have a whole set of diverse experiences since graduating. And that really drives a lot of my passion areas. How can I make it easier for people to connect to each other? And then how can I inspire people to address some of these big problems that you can only address together, right? It's not just about one person. It's about the whole. And that sounds like behavioral health. I mean, there's a whole spectrum, right? Thank you so much. Our guest has been Dr. Glenda Wren Gordon. She is president of Mindula Clinical Services. That's it for this edition of Brainstorm. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for joining us. Us Against Alzheimer's A-List is an online community where people living with dementia, their caregivers, and anyone interested in brain health come together to share their insights. We call it the science of us. Join more than 10,000 A-List members making what matters most heard. Sign up at alistforresearch.org. That's A-List, the number four, research.org. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Karen and Chris Siegel. Subscribe to Brainstorm through your favorite podcast platform and join us for new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of every month.